Life can be stressful, even under normal circumstances. 2020 has challenged even the most difficult times of life. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes. That's Headspace. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research and can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Go to headspace.com slash C-suite for a free one-month trial. Headspace.com slash C-suite. This is the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Here's Robert Kiyosaki. Hello, 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 this is Robert Kiyosaki of the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. What do we have bad news today? Man, if you don't want to hear any bad news, this is not your program. You better go stick your head back in the sand. So once again, uh, we're here in beautiful downtown Old Town, Scottsdale, Arizona, where it's either heaven or hell. Right now it's heaven. And I'm here with Kim. She just returned from Peru and Mexico City. Yes, we did a couple of uh, rich woman events, and there is such a demand for financial education in Latin America. It's very exciting. Very exciting. So, thank you. And our guest today is Chris Varelis. I hope that pronounced it correctly, Chris. <laughs> Yes, you did. Okay, thank you. Hi, Robert. Hi, Sam. Hi, hi, hi Chris. Glad, glad to have you on the show. And the reason I say, you know, you know, uh, we try to be fair and balanced here, which you know, like Fox. But uh, anyway, it's called the Good News and Bad News about Money. Money, but I love the title of your new book, How Money Became Dangerous: The Inside Story yeah. of Our Turbulent Relationship with Modern Finance, which so, just came out. So who is this guy, Chris Varelis? Okay, he's responsible for brokering some of the biggest mergers and acquisitions in finance. Chris is listed among the top 100 deal makers by the New York Times and was named Technology Rain Rainmaker by Deal Makers Monthly Magazine. So now he's there sitting, counting his money, and his new book comes out soon. It's How Money Became Dangerous, The Inside Story of Our Turbulent Relationship with modern finance. And he so, also knows Wall Street very well because he worked at Solomon Brothers and City as head of uh, global head of technology. So he has that that background as well, which is very, very important. So welcome to the program, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, uh, we have a very similar mission, trying to uh, create financial literacy and educating those what? that want to learn more about money. Yes, yes. Anyway, so, you know, Give us, give us a little bit your background and how that led you, because you've made a lot of money, to how money became dangerous. What was the genesis of that? Yeah, I've been fortunate to work uh, in almost every aspect of finance, commercial banking, sales and trading, mergers and acquisitions, investment banking, private equity, so every avenue. And I've always, just like you, you like parables, I, I love a good story. And so what I did was, as I was experiencing various um, various things in the world of money. I, I started by loaning money to diamond dealers and gold wholesalers, and I had a shocking moment in my career as a commercial banker, and I started. I just wrote the story down because I thought it was fun. And then I just kept doing that over 30 years. I actually never imagined to write the book, but then I had a few friends who read the stories and said, you know, not only is this a really fun book, a great book, but it's a needed book. What, what was the shocking story? So, well, it's a reveal, chapter one. I'm, I'm not sure I want to spoil, but I was okay. loaning money to um, diamond dealers and gold wholesalers, incredible characters, and I think we've captured their personalities. Because <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are just larger than life. And it was also the time when the story was I was um, 
it was before the spreadsheet came out, so I was, I was basically doing everything by hand. And then all of a sudden, this amazing thing called the computer came along with a spreadsheet, and then all of a sudden, you could do it on the computer. And that did a couple of things. One, it changed the way you look at the world. You stop, when you can only do it once, you ask the question, what is the most likely thing to happen? But then when you have a spreadsheet, which, you know, you think about it, you think about it, you go, okay, what's going to happen? And you go, okay, that's what I'm going to model. Because you didn't want, if you made a mistake, you had to start all over. But then when a spreadsheet came along, you didn't have to think anymore. You start putting in numbers. Mm-hmm. And then you started doing the, the analysis based on, you know, the output. If you didn't like the output, you could change it. So you started, you went from what is most likely to what is, what is possible. And so that did unleash all of the energy and creativity of the financial mm-hmm. world. But it also... Did had some really interesting, I think, unforeseen impacts, which it really focused everybody on scale and scope. And most importantly, and this is the theme of, of the chapter and led to the shocking moment, is it stopped you being concerned with character. So when I showed up at Bank of America first day in commercial, what, lending, wait, what, said, what year was what year was this, Chris? So- this is, oh, sorry. This is 1985, and I'm, you know, a philosophy major at Occidental College Economics, and I know very little about. I actually got a, the lowest score ever on the pretest uh, that Bank of America gave to new trainees, so I knew very little. But I remember the first day, the five C's of credit and you know, capital conditions, all those, and the fifth C was character. And they would tell me character was the most important thing. You could ignore the other four C's, but character—you had to know your client, you had to know that person, you had to know who you were lending to. And then the spreadsheet comes out, and all of a sudden, <laughs> it, character can't be put into a spreadsheet. Mm. As I say, there's no column for character, right? Mm, so then what happens is, because you can't measure it, you stop thinking about it. You stop worrying about it. So all of a sudden, the fifth C is, is replaced by credit score. So you, you, you know, that's one of, I think, one of the in, interesting challenges I cover in the book. Of the and, and that's when you years. say it, that it, it, this whole... Modern finance has dehumanized Americans yeah. and the world and and people yeah. throughout the world. Yeah, we we sort of solved the character issue by saying, look, if we build a model that's complex enough and captures enough, we don't actually care. You know, like default rates don't matter. It's like as long as we measure the we we, we factor into into our algorithm a certain number of defaults, we'll be okay. It doesn't really matter the character of who we're lending to. So and that was you know. I'm most pe- and Chris, I'm sure most people have seen It's a Wonderful Life, and you know it's like the George Bailey's of the world, where the banker knew their client, or customer, or whatever yeah. has gone away, and now you just are. You became a number. You became a FICO score. You became a you became a score. And then the the story is about how you know one of my clients is this affable, friendly, you know, great, really good fun, and I, you know, because of his personality, I basically grow to trust them or another one of my clients who is like swears every other word and you know whatever i I go whoa whoa i don't think he has the character to lend but it turned out it was just the opposite of course of course you hear that kim i mean she's always trying to stop me from swearing but hey anyway but but chris chris wasn't that the era of michael milken and junk bonds with credit was evolving yeah, no, so, so one thing leads to another. So you've, that was chapter one I just talked about. Chapter three is the Michael Milken era where I talk about, and this is another one of the changes where, you know, up until, up until corporate raiders and Michael Milken, 
your company mission was all about best product and best service. Like if you read the mission statements of right. of companies pre mid eighties, it's like we're going to make the best product on the planet. We're going to provide the best service. And then when when management started to falter and we started to see um, American business not perform, enter the corporate raider financed by Michael Milken, obviously structuring these these instruments on the spreadsheet and being able to scale and 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 build that product, it did have the benefit of recharging business because all of a sudden management teams were afraid to, you know, to not perform. There was a sort of a governor or, or an entity, but that's what forced. It's hard to believe, and I know we're going through it now with the discussion of the business roundtable. That was when mission statements changed from best product to maximizing shareholder value, and so, all of a sudden, then, while that was that's a good north star for driving performance. It also made business, you know, less human, a little more antiseptic. You were no, you were no longer firing, you know, Robert and Kim. You were, you were doing a riff and a downsizing of X number of people right. under the so Chris under Chris, the, the, Chris. the protection of of we're maximizing profit. Yes, right, Chris. A lot of a lot of people have no idea what you're talking about right now. See, what happened was back then is that if your corpor- if your corporation was fat with money, that's when the corporate raider came in. And they basically chopped up your company. They fired people. That was when downsizing became, you know, the the new word of the day. And so a lot of people don't understand what happened to the character, as you're talking about, of the world of corporations. That's when, I think, was it some guy named Hacksaw Reynolds or something like that was in there just chopping up, chopping up the pension plans and firing people. And just was like a, they took a big cow and cut it into little pieces and shipped it all over the place. And that's and that's when people stopped trusting the company they worked for. Was it was that that era? Yeah, yeah, that's the era. I mean, we can we would probably debate in in some cases uh, the undermanaged assets. I actually worked at Disney um, at the time when um, Steinberg did a hostel of of Walt Disney Productions, and that was really when the corporate raider entered the American mindset because all of a sudden an American an American asset was under attack, like an American institution, like Mickey Mouse was being taken over <laughs> by a hostile raider. And I, and, and I remember working there being appalled by the notion that, you know, somebody was going to uh, take over Disney and, you know, do what, what, what they would. Right, right. And, and, and you know, and, and Steinberg ended up, he ended up getting green mail and going away, but the management team changed over and Eisner took over. And, and you look, there were a lot of changes where I was like, hold on a second here like you know he he, you know first thing he did is he jacked up ticket prices he um put all the movies out on video cassette you know there was a walt disney had a tradition where he kept the cost of milk and balloons really low because he believed every kid you know should get a a a balloon and a glass of milk right so it was like a nickel they were like a nickel like something you know very very low and of course he comes in and raises the price of milk and balloons and i was you know, I was like disturbed. I was like, "Well, this is this is an American institution." Now, Disney started making a lot more money and started becoming profitable, and you know, it's become right. So, know, Chris, so, yeah. Same, so, Chris, yes. let me ask you this question. So, your book is called "How Money Became Dangerous." So, that was when it all started. You know, with the corporate raiders, with um, and then you were also part of Orange County's bankruptcy, and I think that's an interesting yeah. story because. A lot of people don't know, because you were on the inside of that one, and I remember going, I mean, how can Orange County go bankrupt? It's one of the richest 
counties in America. And so what, what was your, you know, if you could simplify it for our, our, our listeners right now, what happened? Yeah, I remember when I first heard Orange County declare bankruptcy, I was like, well, it's not my Orange County, because my Orange County is the wealthiest Orange County. It's got to be Orange County, New Jersey, or Florida, or whatever, because I, <laughs> I know there's a whole bunch of them. And then I'm like, whoa, it's Orange County, California. How can that possibly, like, how can the wealthiest county in America, or one of the wealthiest, possibly have gone bankrupt? And it, it, it's basic, you know, it's a combination of things. All, all disasters have multiple reasons, but at the end of the day, it was because um, Orange County sought the revenues, you know, Prop 13 came and that lowered the tax base, but the Orange County residents were demanded, you know, didn't want to drop in services. And lo and behold, comes this treasurer, Robert Citron, who no, you know, he claimed when he was, you know, on trial that he had no financial background, all of a sudden makes these big bets on the movement of interest rates. And he did it by buying large, you know, large amounts of derivative securities, which was, this was also the time when the word derivative entered the... Although he had no financial, he had no financial training. He really didn't know what he was doing, is what you're saying. He he had none, but he started making these huge bets on interest rates going down by taking the work, taking the checking, this is the property taxes, right? These are dollars that go to be pay teachers and policemen and it's basically the working capital it's the money you, know, you pay your property tax and this is what funds the operations of the county so it's not an endowment this is actual money to run the county and he takes that money and he makes huge bets on the movements of interest rates and for many years he was smart because interest rates were only headed down and you know how it is when you're right for a long time you start to believe that you're smarter and smarter and then you make bigger and bigger bets and you know, it got to the point where he was betting tens of billions of dollars on the movements of interest rates, and the county was making quite a bit of money. And, of course, the supervisors were like, one supervisor actually quoted as saying, like, I don't know how he does it. Thank God he does, right? It's like they don't really want to know. <laughs> but if you, but you only have to look good. up page one of the annual report to see that it was, you know, something fishy was going on. Because how could, it, how could 40% of your revenue come from interest income so, don't have so, so Chris, 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 we're, Chris, we're really limited on time, so I need to sure. cut this. So, so you have sure. Orange County, the richest, probably one of the richest counties in California, a rich state. Then you had Stockton go bust. What was the difference between a rich county and a poor town go bust? What were the causes of that? Yes, so the rich, the rich county made a bet on interest rates, which worked until it didn't. And what's really interesting about Orange County is they woke up bankrupt and basically told the world, we don't care, right? They actually <laughs> had the capacity, they actually had the capacity to meet their bonds and their debt obligations and, you know, pay, pay their obligations. But they said, you know, like, that's the moment when the, when the population, the populace, as I say, became disconnected from government finance. It was like, I didn't get us into this mess. I don't, remake, I don't remember even making that decision to borrow that money you know, not my problem. So so they voted down a tax measure to increase, obviously, it's a very libertarian county, but they, they, don't lo- they don't like taxes to begin with, but they voted down a simple half-cent increase in the sales tax to repay this thing, you know, not my, you know, I think it's a Romanian or Polish phrase, not my circus, not my monkeys, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with this. And so they said, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to repay. And, and then you have a city of Stockton, which is often voted one of the most miserable cities in America, I think it's top of the list many, many years, you know, 70 miles from Silicon Valley, 
who 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 basically decided to um, ride the you know ride the first the dot com bubble and then subsequently the the mortgage saying let's be the bedroom community for um, for Silicon Valley so they invested heavily in residential um, real estate building it out overstepping you know but then promising a lot in the form of pensions and you know enticing people to live there and work there and stay there by offering up uh, benefits in the future that assume that the whole world was going to continue up and to the right. And then when it didn't, it all fell apart. And, you know, unlike, interestingly, unlike Orange County, they don't have the financial resources to pay, but they actually have quite an amazing leadership team right now that's, that's doing everything they can to turn that city around. I have one quick question. Quick, quick question is when Orange County said, you know, screw you, we're not going to pay off this disaster. Who, who got stuck with the bill? So um, very quickly, and I called it Project Robin Hood. Um, it's actually one of my proudest deal results. But even though the county residents said we don't care, I still cared as the advisor. And I said, look, you know, I'd like, I'd like everyone, including pension holders, I'd, I'd like no one to suffer. And so what we did very simply was we reallocated um, revenue from very expensive county agencies. So we took money from transportation and waste and water. You know, it turned out there were huge pockets of, of revenue and dollars there. And I said, look, this should all be part of the tax base. It's all Orange County tax dollars. So let's take from them and reallocate to those agencies that are bankrupt and, and need to pay off. And so it was just a, it was a reshifting, you shifted around money, which was shockingly hard because the political interests of these entities fought us every step of the way. Because so, they, they don't have the mindset of, you know, of Orange County. They have the mindset of, I just care about the, I run the waste system of Orange County. And, right. and so what we did was we, we actually ended up paying everybody off 100 cents on the dollar with interest. We ended up, um, the pen, no pension holders lost their pensions. So, like, at the end of the day, all that we did was we forced certain agencies to operate more efficiently. What you're Which, saying, at what, the end of the day, what you're saying is Orange County had the money, they were just hoarding it. Yeah, they had, like, it's the wealthiest county in America. They, they had all kinds of, you know, why does a water district need to own golf courses and apartment buildings and, you know, all of this? Like, you know, what were, what were they doing charging, you know, this is, this is my you know, obviously political stuff. What, would they do? what were they doing charging water rates such that they could end up buying these assets? And then you, then you went to the headquarters of the, you know, one of these water districts. It was like a Taj Mahal. <laughs> why, why, are, why are you, you know, doing that? Little empires. So little like, little empires. But, yeah. so, so, yes, the money was there and it shifted around. Stockton, though, on the other hand, didn't have the resources. But right, interestingly, right. they had the political will in order to do it. The interesting thing about Stockton, which is facing you know, every, almost every entity is, they have, they, they satisfy the cash demands, like, you know, all their government employees are coming and saying, we want to raise, we want to raise, and say, we don't have the cash for it, but you know what, we'll give you a bigger pension and health benefits in the future, because one, it's in the future, and two, it's beyond the, the, the term of the political person in office, right. so, yeah. you yeah. know, not, I, not, my not problem. on my watch, if, you know, not my problem, yeah. Yeah, it hey, uh, won't uh, be my problem, right? I'll solve my short-term problem with a future promise that won't be right. my problem. Right. So, and, and that's the the modern system of, of financial government has not kept pace with 
the modern financial world. So right. our system of government is antiquated because there's a mis- right. there's a mis- right. mismatch between short-term operating, you know, how we operate governments and the financial complexity which has time horizons well beyond the term of office of right. any, of any Hey Chris, we got we got to go to break. So when we come back we'll be talk- we're talking to Chris Varelas. His new book is called How Money Became Dangerous. I love what he's saying because I'm coming out with another book called Who Stole My Pension? And we're talking about the same thing. But most important, what's most important to you, the listener, is we want to find out how money became dangerous. Because if you read Rich Dad Poor Dad, said the rich don't work for money, savers are losers, and your house is not an asset. And I caught hell for all that. So we come back, I'm going to talk to Chris about, since we're a global program, what he sees going on around the world, because this is not just a U.S. problem, it's international. You're listening to The Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. Don't be like Charlie. Charlie scans the internet for information about questionable land trusts and series LLCs, oftentimes getting bad information from people who have no idea what they're doing. You deserve to work with a reputable company that serves your best interests. Corporate Direct will never sell you more entities than you need. Corporate Direct offers a free 15-minute phone consultation with an incorporating specialist to see if it can help you. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off each and every formation. Call 800-600-1760. That's 800-600-1760. Or visit CorporateDirect.com. Corporate Direct is owned by Rich Dad advisor Garrett Sutton. What is your number one expense in life? Your number one expense. It's taxes. And I've asked the question is how come there's no financial education in school, but why isn't there education on taxes either? You know, they tell you to save money, which is stupid. They tell you to invest in the stock market, which is stupid. But what they teach you about taxes. So here at Rich Dad Advisor, Tom Wheelwright, we're talking about his revision for his book, Tax-Free Wealth. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Robert. So what's the tax-free wealth about? What What's different this time? It's a rev- revised edition. Well, so what we did was, is we ha- this is the first major tax reform we've had in 30 years, 2017. Right. Was 86 was the last one. 86 was the last one right. back when I was in Washington, D.C. So many guys got wiped out because of that tax change. <laughs> they did. They yeah. did. It wiped out an entire industry, savings and loans. This new tax law is just as big, but in a very different way. It affects different industries. You know, the tax law is always a series of incentives. And the question is always, which incentives and which ones apply to me? And so the key to revising tax-free wealth was, what is it, what changed so much in this new tax law that we can absolutely take advantage of? I mean, seriously, the amazing incentives. For example, I mean, the bonus depreciation, for example, for real estate is unbelievable. You buy a a, a million-dollar apartment, get a $300,000 reduction or more the very first year. So if you want to make more money and pay less taxes like Donald Trump and myself, get Tom's book, Tax-Free Wealth. It pays to listen. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad Radio Show. Welcome back, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. And like I said earlier, today is about the bad news. There's a lot of bad news. Our guest today is Chris Varellas. He's the author of How Money Became Dangerous. Very important show to listen to. Once again, you can listen to the Rich Dad Radio program anytime, anywhere on iTunes or Android. or Android, And all of our programs are archived at richdadradio.com. We archive them for one reason, so you can listen to it again. Because if you listen to this again, because repetition is how we learn best, 
you listen to this program again, you'll pick up a whole new thing is about how money is dangerous today. And if you don't understand that, please wake up and smell the coffee. So you can, you can listen to this program again, have your friends, family, and business associate listen to this program and discuss it, and you'll be 20 times smarter than your brother-in-law who's playing golf today. Any comments, Kim? Well, no, I, I, this is fascinating. Some there's so much we can be talking about because Chris also was was with um, Solomon Brothers City on Wall Street. Um, he's a co-founding partner and managing partner of Riverwood Capital, and uh, there's so many things that we hear we were talking about. So the book is the book is called How Money Became Dangerous. So is money becoming dangerous not just in the U.S. Is it, Chris? It's all over the world. All over the world. Yeah, money doesn't discriminate based on. Uh, ethnicity, national border, or whatever, it's, uh, it's, it's ubiquitous and, and uh, of course, impacting all of us. Yeah, so, we, you know, I always say now you can pick your crisis uh, du jour, and, <laughs> and there's, a, there's a country that basically has become the poster child for that. I'm probably mixing metaphors there, sorry, but, but yeah, there's a poster child for it. So, yeah, we, you have the demographic challenge, which you see in, you know, Japan and China. Japan has now got the highest average age of, of any country in history and you know who's you know who you know systems that require the young to pay into you know to take care of the old you know if there's nobody coming in on the on the front end and the back end you know is, is, is not going to be supported so so japan's got that china is trying to become as we say rich before they come old become old you know we don't think of it but china is actually is, is, is becoming an aging country and you know, we'll see if they can, you know, truly hit the continue on the growth trajectory that's going to going to allow that. And then you have the uh, what I call the I, I you know say no to austerity. It's like okay, we take on a lot of debt, and then we wake up one day and say, oh, you know what, we really don't want to pay that debt back, and we really don't want to to pursue business practices that will grow the economy to allow that. And then you have a you know, a crushing currency correction. Which right. So, Chris, that. Chris, let me ask you this know, question, which, which we really got to get to it because your book is How Money Became Dangerous, the inside story of our turbulent relationship with modern finance. There's something I want you to answer for me. How in the world can there be $17 trillion in, in debt, money in debt. that's negative interest rates? I mean, why in the world would somebody give somebody money so you get less back. I mean, what is the logic? I mean, that is as dangerous as I can. I can that's not dangerous. That's stupid. So why why are people why would people give anybody any money to get less back? Yeah, you know, it's it's a phenomenon that we've you know it's a new phenomenon. We're all we're all grappling with one how did you know how did it happen? Two, what does it mean? You know, it basically shows that the central bank policies um, that we relied on the last thirty you know, the last generation are, are, are basically come to an end. And you combine that with um, globalization and all of the productivity gains that come from it, that, um, you know, deflation is, is, is just the, the prevalent for the world of things I say we want. I mean, one of my favorite charts, I think, is, is one that says the cost of things we want and the cost of things we need. The cost of things we want has plummeted due to technology advances. So I'm talking about big screen TVs and you know whatever. And the cost of things we need, education, healthcare, those costs have skyrocketed. So in 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 most of the consuming world, deflation is the is the 
strongest variable, and the central banks can't really do anything as much as they try. They can't, they don't, they're powerless to confront it. So the only reason you would give money to someone and say, you can give me, I'm going to give you a dollar today, and you can give me 95, 98 cents back, you know, whatever, a year or two years from now, is you actually think your 98 cents that you're going to get back is going to be worth more than, you know, it'd be worth 96 cents if you didn't do the deal, right? And so you're actually, you're, you're under the belief that that's an economically attractive deal. The other problem you have is there's so many hundreds of trillions of dollars that needs to, to find a home. Um, you know, where do you put it? And who's willing to take on that volume of money? Now, there's a concern now that you're going to say, wait, I don't want that deal. I'm just going to keep it in cash, right? It's a, it's a hard concept to get it. It's a hard concept to wrap your head around the fact that you'd rather give somebody the money and take back less than just keep it in your mattress, you know, at home and you know, bury it in your backyard or wherever, thinking, well, I'll, at least I'll have a dollar. I won't have 98 cents. But, you know, the fact of the matter is because of deflation, that, that, that dollar is, is worth less. And so that's the only reason. And, and the, the implications of that, are, are ones that I'm not sure we fully understand. I mean, Germany, you know, just to continue the, the lap around the world, you know, Germany's growth, it just, you know, is slowing. Um, you know, I think, I, you know, we've just seen that they've gone, you know, negative growth. And they're the only, one of the only few countries that has not engaged in a whole, the whole other side of it, which is fiscal spending. So running a fiscal deficit in order to spur the economy which is another trap I think we fall into. There's some, there's some sort of magic or belief that if we can, you know, keep every quarter we have to keep GDP growth positive and we're willing to sell the future in order to do that, which is, you know, a trade that I think we're all going to, you know, face when the, when the reckoning comes. And so now everyone's trying to press the Germans to spend more money as a government and to run a deficit in order to keep the growth of Europe, you know, positive and forward. And so... It's going to be, uh, you know, anyone who says they can explain this and tell you what's going to happen, I, I, I don't think there's really a lot of precedent. So, um, so Chris, let me ask you this. You know, we, we speak to, let's say, the average person out there, and um, how can our listeners avoid the danger of money? Well, another way of saying it is, what can you and I do? I mean, we're not going to, you know, Draghi's not going to call me. He's not there anymore. But uh, the central yeah. bankers aren't going to call us. What's, 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 what does a little guy do? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, the, the, the little guy is the one that suffers when these macro policies go wrong. The little guy is the one that suffers because most of their savings, if they have savings, is usually tied up and you know, uh, is not diversified. So either they're in an asset that happens to be on the right or the wrong side of the that. And so, or even their know, savings given, account given, is being charged. They're being charged to keep their money, keep their savings in a bank. That's <laughs> like a negative interest rate. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 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 No, I think I think we're going to see policies that are going to keep that at zero. But you know, one of the first stories I tell in the book is you know I, I worked really hard from second grade to you know whatever, and I saved two hundred whole dollars, and I left the money in my. I left the money in the bank account during my college years thinking, well, it's going to, you know, I'd learned the concept of accumulating interest. And I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be great. You know, let's see, I, you know, how much money did I make after four years? I'm just going to ignore it and pretend it doesn't, didn't, you know, didn't exist because I, I understand it. And I go back and I, you know, I see that 
be counted as empty because they've implemented a service charge and zeroed out my account over the over the years, and so all the money that I'd spent my life savings have been, <laughs> you know, completely wiped out. And so that was my first rude lesson, a rude awakening in in the world of money, and started to question whether or not you know the world of finance. Um, you know, the answer, and I and I'd like to tell you that you know this is. You know, this is insightful and the like, but you know, at the end of the day, the answer is diversification because you can't possibly know or see. The problem is there's not a lot of vehicles for you to diversify. You know, we 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 definitely cater, you know, to the wealthy in terms of wealth managers and advice, and we can all question as to how helpful that is. But you know, that's why what you're doing in terms of you know educating people in the financial world, you know, I would say is get educated. Also, you have to stay proximate. You know, people have lost proximity to, you know, to the financial world. What, what does that so mean? Either they don't, they, everything from, either they don't know what their local governments are borrowing, mm-hmm. or now more and more we're getting comfortable with buying stock without even knowing what the companies do. It's Complacency, like, it's called. You know, ETFs now are, what, 50% of all stock, and you don't really want to know what's in that portfolio. You don't you don't want to care. And so you just want to know that you're diversified as cheaply as possible, which is a good thing. I mean diversification is good, cheap low costs are good, but you know, proximity is has gone away. And um at, you know, at the end of the day we need vehicles, we need we need me- more mechanisms for people with limited savings and resources to diversify. At a minimum, if your money's in a pension you better understand how that pension is invested and actually try to understand and demand and look and read how funded am I, how, what's the underwriting assumptions, what's going on. And if it's not good, you need to make noise. You need to, you need to, to raise your hand. I think most people look at their quarterly balance and they say, okay, did it go up or go down? But they have no idea and with just a little bit of work, ask how funded is it? What's your underwriting assumption? Because most pensions have assumed that they're going to you're going to make seven percent over the life of that pension, and most experts would argue that's too high. It should be five percent, and so you're basically buying and complicit into a fiction that isn't going to be there at the time of the retirement. So, so at a minimum, you should wherever your money is, you better you better understand um, you better understand how safe that's safe it is. That's, that's, that's just a starting that's, point. That's great, great advice. You know, Chris, we could go on forever. I want to thank you for your contribution to the Rich Dad Radio Show, and most most importantly, you know, get get Chris's book, How Money Became Dangerous, the inside story of our turbulent relationship with modern finance. And I think that's one of the most important things a person can do is understand what the heck is happening to your money and why it's dangerous. So, Chris, thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Congratulations on your book, and uh, keep educating people. We need it. You too. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. We'd like to have you back. I mean, we could go on forever on this. A couple more bankruptcies oh, oh, I want yeah. to talk about. <laughs> Happy to come back. <laughs> thank you. Anyway, th- thanks for answering the thank questions you. on Orange County. I always wondered how in the world could a rich county go broke, but now you told me. They just didn't pay. Okay, so we come back. We're going to the most popular part of our program, which is called Ask Robert. You're listening to the Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. Don't be like Charlie. Charlie scans the internet for information about questionable land trusts and series LLCs. 
oftentimes getting bad information from people who have no idea what they're doing. You deserve to work with a reputable company that serves your best interests. Corporate Direct will never sell you more entities than you need. Corporate Direct offers a free 15-minute phone consultation with an incorporating specialist to see if it can help you. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off each and every formation. Call 800-600-1760. That's 800-600-1760. Or visit CorporateDirect.com. Corporate Direct is owned by Rich Dad Advisor Garrett Sutton. Financial freedom begins with financial education. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad Radio Show. Welcome back, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. You can listen to the Rich Dad Radio program anytime and any, or anywhere on iTunes or Android. And all of our programs are archived at richdadradio.com. We archive it so you can listen to this program again because repetition is how you learn best, especially this program. Anything you want to say about that? I, I, I was There's so much information from, from Chris, and I thought it was really interesting when he talked about the, the spreadsheet um, that the spreadsheet that he was always taught that the most important thing in, in loaning money is the character of the individual and you've got to understand and learn about the character and learn about the, your customer and the spreadsheet literally took the character out of the equation and replaced it with credit score so all of a sudden the character of the individual meant nothing and credit score meant everything so it's fascinating just how history played out in this whole scheme it's a good thing I didn't have any credit score anyway no but uh, it's, a, it's such an interesting time. Once again, Chris's book is How Money Became Dangerous. And that fits right with what we say at Rich Dad, you know, the rich don't work for money, savers are losers, your house is not an asset. I caught hell for that 20-something years ago, and now it's coming true. So anyway, uh, now going to the most popular part of our program, which is Ask Robert. You can submit your questions to Robert at richdadradio.com. So, Melissa, what's the first question? Our first question today comes from Annalise in Charlotte, North Carolina. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. She says, Robert and Kim, I'm studying your work and have recently started investing in gold and silver coins. My question is, I'm wondering what to do with my savings. I know I need to invest in other assets. Given that I've started with gold and silver, what do you recommend as a next step? Well, that's a great question, and congratulations for starting. You know, you always start small, but... I really don't hold gold and silver as an investment. To me, and we make a lot of money at it, but it's more an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy that pays for itself. So I was listening to this other guy this morning and he was talking about bubbles and anti-bubbles. So the world is in what we call today an everything bubble. Everything is in a bubble. So you've got to have the anti-bubble and the anti-bubble is gold and silver. Now, does it mean that gold and silver won't go down when the everything bubble busts? Because real estate will come down, stocks will come down, bonds will come down, uh, everything's gonna come down. So will gold and silver. But the question is, what is gonna sustain? So gold and silver are anti-bubbles. And as far as cash goes, this is, since you live in North Carolina, South Mm -hmm. Carolina? North Carolina, North Carolina, great Mm -hmm. state. We live in South Carolina too. But what you do with your money depends upon where in the world you live. Like if I was in Zimbabwe, I'd be dumping the Zim dollar as fast as I could get. I, if I was in Argent, Argentina, I'd be dumping that as quick as I get going into gold and silver. If I was in Japan, you could save yen. If you're in Euro, maybe save Euro. In the US, you can save dollars. So relative to what's safe depends upon what country you're in and how secure is the currency of your 
country. That's any comments on that, Kim? Yeah, interesting, because this came up the other day when we were talking to Jim Rickerts, and he said, you know, when things come crashing down, you're going to want gold, silver, and cash. And he talks about a lot of people are sitting on U.S. cash right now. But the reason they're sitting on it is because they're waiting for the crash to come. So whether it be real estate, whether it be the stock market, whatever that crash is, they then are in the position to go buy up all these assets. So for Annalise, if right now, if you're sitting on savings, this might be the time to start getting educated and start really paying attention to what's going to happen. So when this market does come down, then you can use your cash and invest it if you know what you're doing. And if you live outside the U.S., listen to the Rich Dad Radio Show outside the U.S., you could save U.S. US dollars. Yeah. I have a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm don't. i not endorsing this, but they have two bank accounts, one in the country they live in and one, one in the U.S. So they have two things. They have U.S. cash and U.S. passports. So if the, you know what hits the fan, they're going to leave their country with a US, and come to the U.S. with a U.S. passport. So there's all kinds of things. I mean, I don't endorse any of this, but I'm just telling you what my friends are doing. Next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Darren in Dallas, Texas. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It says, what do I do with all of my student debt loans? Should I make minimum payments and use the rest of my cash now to invest in real estate, or should I eliminate that debt with every penny I find? And hopefully then I could be debt-free in five years and then start investing in real estate. Well, first of all, you know, Kim said it best, I would invest in education first. If you're gonna invest in real estate, I start with Ken McElroy's book, mm -hmm. you know, the ABCs of Real Estate Investing, ABCs of Property Management, because real estate, we had, we had a big program on this a few, few one ago with the real estate guys, and the problem with most people is they're so arrogant. They think you can just buy real estate and make money. You know, Kim and I have had a number of friends and partners who, you go, they don't know what Kim and I do. And I said, well, and I talked to our partner. They go, do you know I've bought six houses? I said, yeah, you bought residences. You didn't buy investment property. I'm a real estate investor. Or the other idiot tells me this, I have a real estate license. <laughs> you know, at that point, ladies and gentlemen, don't turn around, back up slowly, because you're talking to an idiot. Just because you bought a couple of residential properties and just because you have a real estate license means you're an idiot. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you know anything about real estate investing. And as I said about real estate investing, unlike the stock market, you invest in the stock market, you make a mistake, it's liquid. You can get out tonight. But you make a mistake with real estate, you're, you're driving the Titanic. Right, Kim? Yeah, and that's why everybody that we know who we work with, who are partners with us or who are successful in real estate investing, um, they start small. They take baby steps. And they take classes. And they take a lot of seminars. They attend Constantly. a seminar. They attend conferences. Yes, because you're going to make a ton of mistakes. It's just a learning curve. It's a, it's a new it's a new area, so if you're going to put a little money down, you better know what you're doing. I would invest in a real estate class, and yeah. and then there's a lot of them online. There's plenty too. YouTube's got plenty, but get educated because you're writing something that's illiquid. Gold and silver stocks and bonds are liquid. You make a mistake, you can get out. If I have a million dollars in gold, I can get out tonight. I have a million dollars in real estate. I'm writing the Titanic down. So really, those are the ways you look at things. I just can't believe, you know, I mean, I, I can see it now because they're not partners with them. They're idiots. I mean, they're really, yeah, I bought six, this is our sixth house. I go, you gotta be an idiot. Or oh, the other one is, 
I have a real estate license, do you? I said, no, I'm not that stupid. You know, why, why don't I want a real estate license? Because I don't want one, I don't need one. You know, I don't, that's not how, what we do. You know, do. the only reason I think a lot of people get a real estate license is so that they can save on commission. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's such small thinking. Oh, such yeah. small thinking. I mean, sure, if you're going to buy your first one, you're going to save a few hundred dollars, great. But in the long term, if you really want to be a professional real estate investor, that's, that's not the way to do it. You want people on your team who are smarter, more professional, and know what they're doing that are going to help you to get where you want to go. So I thank Chris Varelas, how money becomes dangerous because it is dangerous as heck right now. I think we're going into one of the biggest crashes in world history. I don't know when, but it's coming. One more thing though. See the thing about gold and silver, real gold and silver, not ETFs. I don't touch anything paper, gold and silver ETFs. Because it's, anyway. The bond market is the one that's in trouble. It's the biggest market there is, bonds. And the smallest market is gold. So when the bond market starts to come apart, you know, some people run into gold. And gold is razor thin. That market is shallow, shallow, shallow. There's not much of it. And there's even less silver. So when the bond market crashes, the real estate market, the everything bubble crashes, and they run into gold and silver, that's what causes the boom. Is because people are getting in to an asset class that nobody can print. You can't print gold, you can't print silver. It's God's money, which I cover in my book, Fake. So ladies and gentlemen, this is a very exciting time, but not a time to be stupid. Once again, thank you for listening to the Rich Dad Radio Show. You can submit your questions to Ask Robert, and thank you all very much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.